Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. Just two topics this week, statistics and brain chemistry. First, we're going to be delving into the world of stats and discussing how they're used in politics in the media to sway opinion. And we'll be looking at what responsibility we have to educate the public about the meaning of statistics and the understanding of risk. After that, we'll hear from Science Magazine about some fascinating research into brain chemistry which leads to impulsive behaviour. Everyone acts a little impulsively on occasion. For some, though, high levels of impulsivity can affect daily life and has even been tied to substance abuse. Joining me, as usual, is our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council. Hello, Diana. Hello again, Clive. And our special guest this week is David Hand, who is Professor of Statistics at Imperial College London and President of the Royal Statistical Society. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. This is a golden age for statisticians, I think, because new computer technology is enabling you to do things with data that your predecessors couldn't even dream about. How are you using these new powers? (laughs) Uh, I think the short answer to that is that the new powers are being used in all sorts of ways. In terms of science, they're enabling us to discover things which you couldn't possibly have discovered without the use of large amounts of data and highly sophisticated statistical techniques. I sometimes describe modern statistics as as like a, a telescope or a microscope. A telescope enables you to see things that you can't see. They're too far away to see with the naked eye. A microscope enables you to see things which are too small to see with the na- naked eye. Statistics enables you to see things which are too complex or subtle to see with the naked eye. Is the data good enough to draw all these conclusions? Data quality is is very often a a key issue. Statistical techniques are being developed, have been developed to cope with poor data, but there comes a limit. You can can extract signals from from very complex data, very subtle signals, but you can't perform miracles no matter how clever you are. Can you give us some examples? I do a lot of work with the retail banking sector. This is concerned with mortgages, car finance, bank loans, credit cards, that sort of sector. It's a wonderful area for statisticians because it involves large data sets. The point about the retail banking sector is that it is primarily a data-driven industry. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, A major credit card supplier might uh, carry out or be involved with a billion credit card transactions a year. Each of those transactions will involve the collection of 70 to 80, 70 to 80, items of information. Uh, So huge amounts of data. And that large data set, which is gradually being built up, can be used to build models, which enables the bank to make better decisions for its customers, to choose what's the right thing to do for its customers, give them a better service, if you like. Well, to ask an obvious example, could the statisticians have done more to prevent the crisis a couple of years ago in retail banking? The statistical models to predict 
whether you should have given someone, for example, a mortgage in the States were very effective and were very good. But if you have a model, you don't need a very clever model to tell you this, if you have a model which says this person has no discernible source of income, they have no track record of having had a loan which they've repaid on time, and, and so on, you don't need a very sophisticated model to say this is probably not a very good risk person, and yet you go ahead and give them a loan on the basis that house prices are going to carry on increasing, so you give them a mortgage. Um, well, I don't think it's the, the statistical model's fault there. It's how you use it that counts. Do you think that the world of banking didn't take enough notice of what the statisticians and their models were saying? I think that's probably well put. I think that's probably true, yes. Yeah. Diana, what is the reputation of statisticians in the world of science? They are actually working in pretty well every area of science now and much more visible, largely down to the Royal Society and the work it's been doing um, to focus attention on statisticians. I think it's also quite important to stress the multidisciplinarity of this, that um, everything that David has mentioned has actually required working hand-in-hand with computer science. And those two areas have developed alongside each other. So that's really very important. And if computer science is weak in the UK, then it can limit the potential for the use of statistics. And I think we should ask, David, whether that is an issue. It's certainly true that statistics has been completely revolutionised over the last 30, 40 years because of the impact of, of the computer the vast data sets that I've already referred to, but also immensely fast computing power enabling us to do things that we wouldn't even have, couldn't even have imagined just a, a couple of decades ago. So computing and advances in computing power have revolutionised statistics. That's certainly true. Um, and, of course, there's no reason to suppose we are now at the top of a mountain. My view is that we're sort of on the foothills and continued advances in computing power are going to lead to continued advances in the capacity to extract understanding from data, which is what statistics is about. So it is important that computer science should continue to advance. Okay, well, we've talked about what statistics can do. I'd like now to turn to how statistics are used in politics and in the media. So, David, to take a specific example, why is it that crime statistics and their presentation are always such a controversial issue in this country? I think there are two reasons. One, there are, there are two sources of crime statistics. There's the police. The police collect data on, on recorded crimes, and there's also a survey. And, of course, when you measure things in two different ways, there's always the capacity for getting conflicting answers. The other reason is that both of these data collection sort of methods collect general overviews, and people uh, often, especially the victims of crime, have a very personal view of it as, as well, and sometimes those two things conflict. There has been an effort made, I think, over the last decade or so by the statistical community and indeed by scientists to improve the public's understanding of statistics and their implications, for example, in understanding risk. Do you think things are getting better from that point of view? I think they are. I mean, statistics has this sort of historical legacy, the sort of notion that it's statistics is all about a Victorian clerk scribbling away at a ledger with, with a, a sort of making ink blots all over the place, adding up columns of numbers. Modern statistics, as I've described, with the powerful software tools, is completely a completely different animal from that. And I think slowly the, the sort of excitement of probing data using these sophisticated modern tools is getting through to people it's an uphill struggle. It's going to take a lot longer, but I think we are beginning to do that. 
Does that mean you need to start much younger with um, children in schools and undergraduates to generate that excitement about probing the data, the fact that if they do that, it can actually set up new ways of looking at things? Provided that the youngsters can put these sorts of things in context, can understand what you're trying to do, you understand that looking at things in this objective sort of way, then I think that would be a wonderful sort of idea, yeah. And what can we in the media do to improve things? Well, one thing, of course, is that uh, one, one can avoid sort of slurs on statistics like lies, damn lies and statistics. I always say that while it's possible to lie with statistics, it's damn side easier to lie without them. And I think that's, that's the real sort of message that you want to get across. If you're really going to probe something and understand it, then you need to get in there, measure it, analyse the data, actually look at how it's actually working. Okay, well, we're going to be talking about statistics, I should think, in every podcast from now on, because as David has said, they are ubiquitous. Every research study is analysed using statistics, including the one we're going to talk about next. So we'll go over now to Stuart Wills in Washington for this week's contribution from Science Magazine. Thanks, Clive. A recent paper has cast new light on the links between brain chemistry, human impulsivity, and substance abuse. Here with more on the story is science's Dolly Krishnaswamy. Everyone acts a little impulsively on occasion. For some, though, high levels of impulsivity, the psychological tendency to act without regard to potential consequences, can affect daily life and has even been tied to substance abuse. But what are the underlying brain mechanisms that control impulsivity and its effects? Neuroscientist Joshua Buckholtz of Vanderbilt University and colleagues report that the link is likely the regulation of a single common chemical in the brain. We know from research in animals and in humans that the neurotransmitter dopamine, especially dopamine in a region of the brain called the striatum, plays a really important role in impulsive behavior. And we also know that dopamine is strongly involved in substance abuse, as all drugs of abuse change dopamine levels in the brain. What hasn't been known is how differences in dopamine levels translate to differences in impulsivity, and whether dopamine is the biological key to the relationship between impulsivity and drug abuse. This impulsivity is a very interesting trait. Trevor Robbins is a neuroscientist at Cambridge University who is not associated with this study. The question is, does it arise as a consequence of drug abuse or because the subjects were already impulsive before they indulged in drug abuse? So it's a chicken and egg question. To help answer that question, Buckholtz and colleagues developed a comprehensive model of what is known about dopamine's role in the brain and then tested it. At the core of this model is an understanding of how the brain signals for dopamine to be released. Dopamine-containing neurons are in the midbrain area, and some of these cells release dopamine onto the striatum, a region of the brain known to be involved in motivation and reward. So when we experience something rewarding, like a really good piece of Swiss chocolate, these midbrain dopamine neurons get very active. To keep the cells from flooding the striatum with too much dopamine, they rely on special regulatory sensors called D2 autoreceptors, which shut the flow down once they sense that dopamine has been released. You can think of it in some ways as very similar to how a thermostat works in your house. In this analogy, the autoreceptors are the thermostat that helps regulate how much heat is produced by the furnace, or in this case, how much dopamine is released from the midbrain neurons. 
It is this system that Buckholz believes regulates impulsivity. To go with the thermostat analogy, we thought that uh, these impulsive people had a broken thermostat, which caused their furnaces to pump too much heat into their living room. Or too much dopamine onto the striatum. To test the hypothesis, the team first measured the impulsivity levels of volunteers using a standard questionnaire. Then, they used positron emission tomography, or PET scanning, to measure the presence of D2 autoreceptors in the same volunteers' midbrain dopamine neurons. Finally, they gave subjects the stimulant drug amphetamine, which should cause dopamine levels to rise, and used PET scanning to see how much dopamine was actually released onto the striatum in response to the drug. The result? People with high levels of trait impulsivity showed lower levels of D2 autoreceptors in the dopaminergic midbrain. That is, the experiments confirm that impulsivity was tied to Buckholz's broken thermostat in the brain. The results also showed that when given the amphetamine, the subjects with the lowest midbrain D2 autoreceptor levels had the highest release of dopamine onto the striatum. And, says Buckholz, After we gave our participants the drug, we asked them how much they wanted more of it. And we found that the people who released the most dopamine in the striatum had the strongest desire for more drug. So this study has provided further evidence in high-impulsive, non-drug-abusing human individuals that increased impulsivity is associated with increased dopamine. Again, Trevor Robbins from Cambridge University. And moreover... They've shown that this is correlated with a subjective wanting for the drug. So, in the chicken and egg debate, the new study suggests that the tendency to substance abuse behavior lies in a person's innate tendency to impulsivity, which in turn is linked to faulty regulation of dopamine in the midbrain. Buckholz thinks that the work could point to new targets for therapies aimed at tweaking the midbrain's dopamine regulation in highly impulsive individuals. For science, this is Dolly Krishnaswamy. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Stuart, and thanks to AAAS and Science. Well, David, although you don't know the details of this study, it is a typical example of the type of neuroscience experiment where statistics are necessary to disentangle uh, the chicken and egg or cause and effect, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I think this is a very good example of why you need statistics. I don't know if you recall, but um, Lord Rutherford Rutherford once said that if you need statistics to analyse your experiment, you should have done a better experiment. I think that is a complete misconception. The whole point of science is that it's working at the frontier. If it's working at the frontier, almost by definition, it's working in an area where the signal that you're trying to detect is of the same sort of order of magnitude as, as the uncertainties, the measurement error. And that's precisely the sort of area you need statistics. You may not know that after Rutherford had said that, he later went on to study the basic probability course at Manchester University, where he was then based. And he changed his mind, I'm sure. <laughs> well, that's, I think, all we have time for today. So, Diana and David and Stuart in Washington, thanks very much for your contributions. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code mom.